from the heart of our nation's capital, here's Family Research Council President Tony Perkins. Welcome to Washington Watch. My name is Joseph, back home in for Tony today. Glad that you are with us. want to remind you that you can find this program and every program at TonyPerkins.com, as well as the resources that we will reference today on the show. And today on the program... Is the Chinese government operating black sites outside of its own border in other countries? We'll talk about that a little bit later today. And how is the chaos in Afghanistan affecting the American military personnel who served in Afghanistan? That's a conversation, a difficult conversation uh, we are going to have today in the program. In addition, Afghanistan is not the only crisis facing the Biden administration. The southern border is a crisis. Inflation is at uh, generational levels. Uh, Crime is rising in many cities. Is it all the Biden administration's fault? What does this mean for the future? We'll talk about that at the end of the program as well. But first, to start it off, President Biden has faced increasing criticism of the way the military presence in Afghanistan is being handled. Yesterday, however, the commander in chief tried to make the issue about his decision to withdraw without owning up on the way it has been executed. In a a statement that surprised many observers, he even claimed that his administration had planned for an outcome like the chaotic one we've seen playing out in Afghanistan over the last few days. My national security team and I have been closely monitoring the situation on the ground in Afghanistan and moving quickly to execute the plans we had put in place to respond to every constituency, including and contingency, including the rapid collapse we're seeing now. Did he really have a plan for what we're seeing now? With me now to talk about the fall of Afghanistan is FRC's Executive Vice President, Lieutenant General Jerry Boykin, who was one of the original members of the U.S. Army's Delta Force and also spent the last four years of his 36-year military career serving as the Deputy Undersecretary of Defense for Intelligence. General, welcome back to the program. Thank you very much, Joseph. It's good to be with you. Well, it, it's good to be with you. First, uh, there's a lot to talk about here. There is some actual breaking news this afternoon I want to talk about. The State Department uh, has released a statement telling Americans who are currently trapped in Afghanistan that their safety to the Kabul airport cannot be guaranteed. Are we fulfilling our obligation to our citizens in Afghanistan right now? No, my personal <coughs> excuse me. My personal opinion is we are not. And if the president uh, does have a contingency for this, then I would ask, uh, why haven't you executed that contingency? Or is that contingency simply your own, your own, if you're an American or a uh, uh, an Afghani that worked for the U.S. government? So I don't know what's going on here, but I don't believe the truth is being told here by the administration. It's difficult to believe, and I'm no military expert that anything that we're seeing is is part of an actual plan nobody would have written this down i don't think i think what we're seeing is something of a worst case scenario i suppose things can always be worse um but president biden made a statement yesterday he didn't take any questions uh, essentially doubling down on his efforts what was your response uh, to his statement yeah, I, I, first of all, I'd go back to what we were just talking about. I questioned, Mr. President, do you even know what that that contingency plan really is all about? What does it call for? 
and why haven't you executed it? And uh, and the other thing is this: Do you really understand what's happening there? Mm-hmm. I'm not so sure that he does. I'm not so sure that he understands the magnitude of the 10,000 Americans that are in that country, missionaries, contractors, all kinds of people, uh, many of which are, are Afghans that have yeah. American citizenship. Do you really understand the magnitude of this? If you, if you did, you'd put enough force on the ground in there to set up zones that these people could come to and get lifted out probably by uh, CH-47 helicopters into the airport in, uh, in Kabul and, and put on transports to get out of there. We are definitely hearing different stories about what the military, what advice the White House got. Mitch McConnell yesterday, of course, uh, Republican leader Mitch McConnell was asked by a reporter about the intelligence that the president received. And here's a couple excerpts from that exchange, and then I want to give you a chance to talk about that. Do you think the the intelligence the president got was uh, insufficient or wrong? Or do you think the president uh, just mishandled it? It won't surprise you to know I was in a number of these briefings over the last couple of months. It was pretty obvious to me what was going to happen. Uh, I know for a fact that the president's military leaders argued against this decision. I think the president felt strongly about this, obviously. He overruled his own military leaders to do it, and he owns it. Do you think uh, Senator McConnell's description there is likely true? Did he over to, uh, did he overrule his uh, military his military leaders? And if so, why would he do that? I don't think there's any question he overruled his military leaders. The guy that's uh, been on the ground in Afghanistan is a guy named General Scott Miller. Scott Miller worked for me when he was a young captain. In fact, he was in Mogadishu with me during the Black Hawk Down events there, and he was a real hero as a result of that. I know Scott Miller, and I know that Scott Miller advised him that we could not pull out of of Afghanistan the way we did, as precipitously as we did, without uh, providing for uh, the Americans and the Afghans that worked for the Americans there, without providing for their safety and security and a way to get them out. So, yes. Why did he do that? I think he's got a bunch of uh, Ivy League... uh, national security advisors that have never been on the ground, that uh, everything is theory to them. They're not practitioners, and they're giving him some really bad advice because what they're primarily focused on is his social agenda. And that's what the, that's what you see in the military. It's what you see in the homeland security. It's what you see in every department of this uh, administration. And I think that uh, he is listening to the wrong people, not paying attention to the right people. Uh, Secretary of State Antony Blinken, he appeared over the weekend on CNN State of the Union. He argued that keeping the U.S. troops in Afghanistan uh, is, quote, simply not in the national interest. Do you agree with that statement? I do not agree with that statement. Now, first of all, let me go back, Joseph, and say that I think we had accomplished our objectives in uh, by January of 2002 in Afghanistan, and I think we could have left then. However, we did not leave then. We turned it over to NATO so we could prepare for Iraq, and I think that was a mistake because NATO does not fight, and we gave them the leadership of the of the coalition in there, and and that's when things started to go south. So, but uh, with regards to to what Blinken was saying there, 
it is in our national interest, not to keep maneuver forces on the ground, not to keep forces on the ground that will be going out and searching for the Taliban, but to keep a small counter-terrorist force that can go after non-terrorists when we, when we know that they are in a particular place, a, a good intel capability that is multifunctional, that covers all the bases, a, uh, a, an embassy security apparatus there, and then finally advisors with them, and that's only that's not much more than the 2,500 we had in there. That's in the national interest. So Blinken is wrong. Afghanistan is not the only place in the world that we have 2,500 troops, is it? How many other countries do you, would you estimate that we have a military presence of that size or larger? Well, certainly the first one to come to mind is Korea. We've got much more than that in Europe, about 30,000 in Europe. We've got them in Japan. We've got them in uh, different places. Uh, we've got them down in, uh, in, in the uh, Pacific. So, no. And, and, and by the way, check how long they've been there. Yeah. They've been there since World War II yeah. in the case of uh, Europe, and they've been there since the Korean War in the case of Korea. And those aren't being described as endless wars. What I have a hard time uh, wrapping my head around is why that kind of presence, which the status quo seemed to be working, and we know that there was a lot of violence in Afghanistan. It wasn't happening lately. I mean, we hadn't have a, had a, a military service person die in combat there in, I believe, in a year and a half, which is wonderful, of course. February so, 20. Why was there this urgency to change the status quo if there was relative stability? Again, it's a matter of who you're listening to. And when you are listening to the people that Joe Biden has around him, people which have no clue as to the real situation on the ground in Afghanistan or anywhere else, or really any situational awareness of what's important to Americans, they have an agenda, and that agenda is a Marxist liberal agenda, and they thought that it would be a good thing for him to be able to say, I got our troops out of combat. They were not in combat. They were serving in there. It's a combat zone. But as you said, yeah. we haven't lost an American since uh, February of 2020. Yeah, there are no proponents of endless war, I don't think. That's exactly uh, right. Do you think the way that this is ending um, will or should affect our ever being involved in Afghanistan? I think it's going to be a hard decision if we ever send people back into Afghanistan. Now, that said, let me say this. I don't think that we should automatically assume that al-Qaeda is going to rush back into Afghanistan because we've left. Al-Qaeda spread out all over the globe uh, after we responded to 9-11. We ran them out of Afghanistan, and they've, they're all over Africa now. They're in Pakistan. They're in Syria. They're in Iraq. And I don't think they necessarily need Afghanistan. They might do it for some propaganda purpose. But I don't think Afghanistan is going to be a, what it was before in terms of a, a primary safe haven for uh, the Taliban, I mean for the uh, al-Qaeda, or any of the other terror networks. So I don't think that it's going to go back to the way it was. Let's certainly hope that's the case. A lot of analogies are being made to Vietnam right now. Yeah. Do you think what we're witnessing at the moment is evidence that we failed to learn any lessons from history? We certainly, it would appear that we did. It, it, the difference here is that uh, in Vietnam, they had almost two months to prepare. They, they knew that Saigon was going to fall. They knew that the, uh, the North Vietnamese were not going to live up to their end of the peace agreement, the Paris Peace Accords. 
So they had about two months to prepare for it. And you did not see pictures of Americans hanging off of helicopters or, or for that matter, Vietnamese hanging off of helicopters coming off the roof of the embassy or anything else. It was, yeah, it was a chaotic situation. But we at least had done some preparation, and we executed it pretty doggone well given what was going on in there at the mm-hmm. time. We did a pretty good job of getting everybody out and getting them off to carriers and that type of thing. So uh, I, I, I think that that is reminiscent. What we're seeing now is reminiscent yeah. of uh, April of 1975, but it's not the same. We've got about a minute left. What we can't do is go back and change anything. What should happen from today moving forward there? Well, from today moving forward, I think that uh, we've, we've got to, first of all, accept that we just destroyed our credibility, and we've got to work real hard to restore our credibility with our allies all over the world. That may be the biggest loss. It's not just the loss of the war. It's the loss of our credibility with our allies. And, and we're actually going to talk about that in the next segment with, uh, with Bob Fu as we talk about what's going on in China, because we already see a China kind of... Um, rattling their sabers a little bit, yep. maybe seeing opportunity. And, and it is concerning. Once evil people don't fear you anymore, uh, what they might be emboldened to do. General Boykin, as always, we appreciate your wisdom and your time with us today. Thank you. Thank you very much, Joseph. And we will continue this conversation, but I, I do want to remind you, uh, there's an article up, Five Ways to Pray for the Afghani People, uh, that we have released today. You can find that at TonyPerkins.com. We do encourage you to be in prayer. It is one of the things that we can do. For those of us who are not in the military, not in the government, we can pray because pray because ultimately this is a spiritual war that we are fighting, and we should not forget that. But as I mentioned, uh, in the next segment, we're going to talk a little bit about China. Uh, They're operating black sites in China. When it comes to reading the Bible, sometimes it can be difficult to know where to start or to understand how to apply scripture to everyday life. There are also those passages that leave people scratching their heads, wondering what some things even mean and what they're supposed to make of it. We all know that scripture is divinely inspired and given by God, and it's useful to us as God uses it to prepare and equip us to do good work for his kingdom, to grow us and to bring us closer to him. God's word is powerful, but it shouldn't intimidate you. That's why Family Research Council offers the Stand on the Word Bible Reading Plan. It's a two-year plan that helps you read the Bible daily so you can stay grounded in God's truth, navigate our culture from a biblical worldview, and grow closer to God. This plan will help you to practice the discipline of reading scripture every day so you can be transformed by God's word. Sign up to get the daily passages and questions today by visiting frc.org slash Bible. God is the author of life and has created man in his image. Therefore, we must respect the inherent dignity of every human life from conception until natural death. That is why Family Research Council works to pass legislation that highlights this principle, including laws that protect the unborn. To keep you informed on this issue, FRC has created online maps that illustrate progress in each state on key pro-life laws. That way, you can know if your state legislators are working to protect unborn babies. The pro-life laws FRC tracks at the state level include those addressing late-term abortions, fetal dignity, defunding abortion businesses, and providing medical care for babies born alive after an attempted abortion. See where your state stands on pro-life abortion. Check out our pro-life maps at frc.org slash pro-life maps.
Most Americans believe they have a biblical worldview, but current research shows that only 6% actually have one. This means that most of our friends and neighbors, including those who attend church, don't think about the day's moral and cultural issues through a biblical lens. Increasingly, we see the disastrous effects of a culture that has rebelled against the truth of God's Word. That is why Family Research Council has launched the Center for Biblical Worldview. This center is an exciting new ministry created to help Christians develop and live by a biblical worldview, to understand why scriptures must be authoritative, and to equip believers to advance and defend the faith in the workplace, in schools, in their communities, and in the public square. The experts at FRC's Center for Biblical Worldview provide research and resources to help prepare believers to give a biblical answer to our culture's most pressing questions. Access the center's free resources at frc.org slash worldview. Welcome back to Washington Watch. My name is Joseph Backholm, and I'm sitting in for Tony today. Yesterday, the Associated Press published a report highlighting the account of a Chinese woman who says she was held for eight days at a Chinese-run secret detention facility in Dubai, along with at least two Uyghurs. While such black sites, as they are known, is co are common in China, the young woman's testimony is believed to be the first account of a Chinese-run black site outside the communist country. What can be drawn from this report? And joining me now to talk about this is Bob Fu, but apparently he is uh, still coming to, to join us. And, and why this matters, um, the, as you know, uh, you may have heard, the Chinese government, as they have been dealing for years, one of the chief human rights concerns with the Chinese government has been their treatment of the Uyghur Muslim population. It's a, it's a minority population in China. I believe it's about a million people in western China who have been placed into uh, what can only be described as concentration camps. Families have been separated from each other, and they have been sent to literal uh, re-education camps so that the Chinese government can try to take these Uyghur Muslims and make them more sympathetic to the Chinese communist cause and the Chinese communist government. And this has been happening in China for um, many years. And the, and the United States has confronted them on some level. The past administration had, had done so. There's been pressure on the Biden administration to take up this cause. But what we have seen uh, this week in this article uh, published by the AP is this interview of a young woman in her 20s who says that she was part of a camp operated by the Chinese government in uh, in the country of Dubai, in the nation of Dubai. This would, of course, be highly unusual for the Chinese government to be operating outside of its own borders in an attempt to round up uh, Chinese nationals who may have fled their control. And, and certainly the fact that this is uh, at least two people were reported to be Uyghurs would be significant because it would indicate that the Chinese government is not only persecuting uh, Uyghurs within their borders, but they are actually reaching outside the borders of China to go find them and, in fact, bring them back into China. There's a number of, of potential issues with this, not simply the underlying human rights abuses, but what it would mean that they might be conducting these camps 
in other countries. Uh, the Dubai government actually has its own questionable history of mistreatment of the Uyghur uh, Muslim population. And is it possible that the Chinese government is getting cooperation from the government of Dubai in order to do this? Now, the, the government of Dubai has, of course, denied that this is happening as they would be expected to do. The Chinese government is also denying this report. And now me, with me now, joining me now to discuss this is Bob Fu, who's the president of China Aid. He is also FRC's senior fellow for international religious freedom. Bob, welcome back to the program. Thank you, Joseph, for having me. Well, tell us what you know about this story. Uh, is it plausible? Is the Chinese government operating a black site operation outside of its borders? Oh, absolutely. Uh, because uh, since uh, Ms. Wu Huang was uh, uh, detained, uh, abducted uh, at Dubai uh, by the Dubai police um, first for three days in the uh, police station, but she was interrogated by the Chinese consular general uh, in Dubai, uh, Mr. Wang Xuhang first, and then she was transferred to uh, the black jail site run by the Chinese for eight days uh, from uh, uh, June, um, from May 31st uh, to uh, June the 8th until uh, she uh, basically passed out uh, during the interrogation and abuses uh, in the Dubai uh, black jail by the Chinese. Do you believe that the Chinese government is getting cooperation from the government of Dubai to do this? Oh, absolutely. Uh, so Ms. Wu Huang called me, actually. She was uh, uh, under gunpoint uh, calling me uh, at, um, uh, on June the 2nd. Uh, I, and then for multiple times uh, in several days, I could hear she was screaming. She was crying, weeping, wailing. And uh, she said, oh, I couldn't bear uh, anymore. And uh, she was basically uh, asking uh, me to uh, accuse Mr. Wang, uh, that, uh, Wang Jingyu, that's her fiancé, uh, that uh, the Chinese government uh, uh, wanted uh, him to be also uh, extradited uh, from Dubai without success, and then uh, because we helped uh, pressure uh, the UAE, uh, released him to Turkey. So the Chinese government used Ms. Wu as the hostage and calling me to uh, basically uh, stop helping uh, her fiancé. Uh, uh, then uh, we, the, she called me uh, again um, after she was um, uh, basically released uh, from the Black Deal site in Dubai on the, uh, during the uh, 8th. And she then apologized to me and said, uh, oh, she was uh, uh, tortured and abused so miserably. So she has to uh, basically uh, call me from Black Deal site. Bob, is the U.S. government aware of this? Any sense that they're responding in any way? Yes. Um, uh, from the very beginning, after, uh, as soon as I talked with Ms. Wu, 
uh, and learned about this. And then we sent the two rescuers from Texas, um, from my office and uh, from the other Christian aid organization called the Freedom Secrets International. Uh, they flew to Dubai and uh, interviewed Ms. Wu Huan. And immediately I reported to the White House National Security Council and to the State Department uh, uh, senior, I mean, officials and alerted them there is a black deal site run by the Chinese Communist Party's uh, uh, diplomats and security forces. And also, there is an explosive discovery uh, by Ms. Wu when she was Bob, being held there. Bob, uh, unfortunately, with the UAE's help, China was interrogating. Bob, we're going to have. I'm going to have to jump in here. We are out of time. We need to get the rest of this story. I apologize well, for that, but we're going to have to follow up with you on this. Uh, come on back because at the other side, yeah, we're going to so, talk about what's going on in Afghanistan, how this is affecting the soldiers who fought there. We'll be right back. Are you looking for a go-to platform where you can get relevant commentary on the cultural issues of the day from a biblical perspective? Today, it can be hard to find this in light of media censorship of conservative and Christian voices. Here at Family Research Council, we believe that every American has a right to exercise their freedom of speech and share their stories with the world. And we think it's important for you to have access to these stories. To get the facts and stories the left doesn't want you reading, head over to frc.org slash blog to check out our newest blog posts. We cover the issues you care about, all written by our experts in policy, government affairs, and biblical worldview. Our experts unpack the topics that other media platforms won't, like current events that affect Christians internationally, sexuality from a biblical perspective, and insights into the increasingly radical shift in American culture. To stay up to date on current news related to faith, family, and freedom, go to frc.org slash blog. We're seeing more and more cases of censorship and the canceling of many conservatives and Christians by big tech companies. To combat this, Family Research Council has chosen to be proactive before big tech tries to censor or cancel us. We want to stay connected with you, and so we've created a tech subscription platform. That way, you can still find updates on faith, family, and freedom, even if big tech tries to silence us. It's easy. You just sign up for the text alerts by texting STAND to 67742, and you'll get FRC's content straight to your phone. Again, just text STAND to 67742, and FRC will keep you looped in on the issues of the day. By subscribing, you'll get information on our upcoming events and programs. We want you to always have access to the content that will help you stand for faith, family, and freedom, and keep you connected with the like-minded community. Just text STAND to 67742 and be the most informed person you know. Welcome back to Washington Watch. Joseph back home, Tony today. Biden said back in April that it's time to end America's longest war. I think it's safe to say that most Americans did not expect to see the chaos we are now witnessing. As I shared yesterday on the program, more than 69% of likely general election voters polled over the weekend said they disapprove of how President Biden is handling the military operations in Afghanistan. And like U.S. Congressman Mike Waltz shared with us yesterday, those who served in, Af in Afghanistan are teetering between rage and grief right now. 
Here's a clip of what Army veteran Matt Zeller shared with MSNBC when asked about his conversations with America's Afghan wartime allies. What is the response? What did they say to you? They forgive us for abandoning them. And I can't forgive myself, and I'll never forgive my country for doing this. I know exactly what every Vietnam veteran has been warning me about now. I'm going to live with a moral injury for the rest of my life. Do you know any members of my unit have called me in the last 24 hours talking to me about whether or not any of this was worth it and how they're struggling? Joining me now to talk about this is Tom Kilgannon, president of Freedom Alliance, an educational and charitable organization that honors and supports America's military and helps troops overcome the wounds of war. He wrote an article that was published on Friday on this topic. Tom, welcome back to Washington Watch. Joseph, great to be here. Thanks for having me. Well, you wrote this article, and it's called The War is Not Over. What did you mean by that? What I mean, Joseph, is uh, the war is not over for veterans who have fought there in Afghanistan. The images of war, the experiences they've had, just as we've seen on the screen by this particular veteran, are replaying in their mind and replaying in their heart. And they are very difficult uh, experiences that they are reliving. You got to understand that those that uh, were in Afghanistan, they faced an evil enemy. They saw the worst that humanity has to offer, and they went toe-to-toe -to -toe with them. And they've come home with experiences that are burning in their hearts, burning in their souls, and it is very difficult to reconcile and put them behind them. How is what they are witnessing right now in Afghanistan affecting them? It is, uh, it's affecting them because uh, as they see what's happening over these past few days, they are asking themselves, why did I do it? Why did my buddy die? Uh, why did I lose a limb for what they, what they see? But, it's, uh, but that's just the latest experience. If you go back years and years uh, for the, the things that they saw, they, are, uh, they have these terrible experiences. And then they um, hear back in the States it affects them by uh, a lack of sleep, a lack of trust, uh, and uh, a loss of purpose, a, a sense of belonging. And that can lead to things like alcoholism or dangerous vices uh, that really put their lives in a, in a destructive slide. And so what we would do at Freedom Alliance is we engage them and we get them out and we put them in the company of other veterans so that they can talk through it and understand that it is, it's not their fault that God loves them and that he wants them to have a healthy, productive life, but they've got to be able to reconcile what went on in Afghanistan uh, and with what their purpose in life is currently. In your article, you talk about uh, the term moral injury to describe part of what they experience. What is a moral injury? A moral injury is uh, it's an affliction of the heart. It's a scar on the soul, and it comes about because of what they've seen. Uh, as I said, they have seen uh, the worst of the worst. They have seen burning bodies. They have seen women and children used uh, in ways that nobody should ever be used as uh, suicide bombers. Uh, they have uh, experienced things. They have been forced uh, in some uh, occasions to take action for which there is no good choice. Uh, and so that leaves them wondering, uh, am I carrying sin? And uh, should uh, uh, they, they're remorseful. They're sorry for what they've done, even though 
what they've done is justified. Yeah. And so they're trying to understand um, they, they just they have a lower self-worth in many cases, and uh, they want to be able to put that behind them because it, what they do is they lock themselves in their homes. Uh, it's hard for them to get out. It's hard for them to interact with the public, to keep a job, uh, and to be productive uh, in the way that uh, we know it to be. Matt Zeller, the, the service member we heard in the clip at the beginning of the segment, uh, described his experience as a moral injury as he watches this. How do you think uh, a moral injury is occurring as they, as they watch the scene in Afghanistan right now? Well, these, you know, those uh, guys that go off to war, just as you had General Boykin on here earlier, yeah. these are people who like to run to the danger to put themselves there, to be the hero, to rescue folks. And so a lot of the uh, veterans of Afghanistan, as they're watching what's going on on their TV screens this weekend, they want to help out. They want to protect the innocent. They want to make sure that those Americans who are over there now come home safely to their families and, and, you know, arrive here safely. And when they can't do that, when they are not empowered to be able to help in that way, that just you know, makes them feel more guilty, makes them feel powerless. I don't have a sense of purpose. And it's a, it, it can be a dangerous slide. Well, and, and I think we all can understand that just as Americans watching what's happening there, we all feel some sense of loss and humiliation. Those who are invested very personally, who know people there, who had friends die, who sacrificed in ways many of us did not, um, it has to be that much more intense. And we, we appreciate your effort in coming to their aid once they get back. Thank you so much. Thank you, Joseph. And we will continue to pray for them uh, because they need our prayer. And this story is certainly not over. And because of that, the effects are certainly not over. But the scene in Afghanistan is far from the only crisis the Biden administration is dealing with right now. Crime, inflation, the crisis at the border. We're going to discuss all of that, what it means for the administration and the future when we come back. What is religious freedom and why should you care about it, both domestically and internationally? By definition, religious freedom is the freedom to hold religious beliefs of one's choice and to live according to those beliefs. At Family Research Council, we care about religious freedom because we believe it is an inherent human right that all governments have an obligation to protect. Tragically, not all governments do. Religious persecution is a harrowing reality around the world that is not often acknowledged by the media, even though attacks on people of all faiths continue to mount in many regions of the world. God calls Christians to care for the persecuted church, the downtrodden, and those who cannot help themselves. Therefore, we must be advocates for those persecuted for their faith. To learn more about this issue and what you can do to help, go to frc.org slash IRF to check out Family Research Council's latest resources on international religious freedom. Christians are called to seek after the Lord above all things. This means we must pray unceasingly, vote our biblical values, and boldly stand for truth. You can join Family Research Council and FRC Action President Tony Perkins in this mission every Wednesday as he hosts the Pray, Vote, Stand broadcast to encourage brothers and sisters in Christ to focus their attention on the Lord in every aspect of their lives. Pray, Vote, Stand will help equip you to stand for biblical truth in the midst of a confusing time in our culture. 
Tony is joined by experts, elected leaders, and Christian leaders for this weekly program to help you see through the fog created by the biased mainstream media. This year, let's commit to pray for our nation, to stand for truth, and to seek the Lord first. To watch the Pray, Vote, Stand weekly broadcasts, visit PrayVoteStand.org. That's PrayVoteStand.org. Want honest and in-depth commentary on what's going on in our nation's capital and around the world? Join Family Research Council President Tony Perkins live every weekday by tuning into Washington Watch. You can listen to the show whenever it works for you. Go to TonyPerkins.com to stream episodes on demand or listen by radio through American Family and Radio Network, Bot Radio, the KTLW Radio Network, or independent Christian radio stations across the country. On the show, you'll hear from guests like Mike Pompeo, Senator Marsha Blackburn, Pastor Jack Hibbs, Ben Carson, Senator Josh Hawley, Sissy Graham Lynch, and more. Get a trusted perspective on the news of the day by tuning into Washington Watch with Tony Perkins at TonyPerkins.com. Again, that's TonyPerkins.com. Washington Watch, Joseph Backholm, sitting in Tony today. Glad that you are with us. We've spent a lot of time over the last couple of days talking about Afghanistan and that debacle, but that's not the only challenge facing the country in the Biden administration. Over the weekend, as the Taliban was advancing on Kabul, Fox News released leaked audio of Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas talking to Border Patrol agents in Texas on Thursday about the crisis at our southern border, saying, we are going to lose. If, uh, if our border is the first line of defense, uh, we're going to lose, and this is unsustainable. Uh, we can't continue like this. Uh, our people in the field can't continue, and our system isn't built for it. Joining me now to talk about the crisis that have, ecl- that have been eclipsed by the latest Afghanistan news is Ken Blackwell, Senior Fellow for Human Rights and Constitutional Governance at Family Research Council. Ken, welcome back to the program. Joseph, good to be with you. So the first thing I want you to do is just respond to um, Mayorkas' comments there about the fact that we're going to lose at the border, and I'm sure he did not want that to be released. What's your reaction to what's happening there? Well, it's a statement of reality. Uh, he understands that the Biden administration and the president uh, himself, they are bleeding out uh, political capital. They are losing credibility and losing the confidence of the American people, whether it's uh, – look, every, every city now is becoming a border town. You know, the, the left has control over the Biden agenda. They're turning us into a borderless state. Uh, and in that situation, every town becomes a border town, impacted by human trafficking, mm-hmm. impacted by, you know, the surge of drugs into our cities. Uh, and as a consequence, you know, this is part of the left's strategy uh, to convert us from free-willed citizens to docile subjects. Uh, and that's the, that's the goal of all status regimes, whether they be authoritarian, uh, totalitarian, or big welfare states. 
part of uh, Mayorkas's comments, I'm going to read you a quote uh, this time, but he said, uh, kind of blame shifting a little bit, as this happens, you know, you always want to kind of pass your problems off to the previous administration. He said, tragically, former President Trump slashed our international assistance to Guatemala, El Salvador, and Honduras, slashed the resources that we were contributing to address the root causes of irregular migration. Another reason is the end of the cruel policies of the past administration and the restoration of the rule of laws of this country that Congress has passed, including our asylum laws that provide humanitarian relief. Thirdly, and importantly, is the resurgence of the economy in the United States and the gleam of the American promise once again. What do you make of his attempt to kind of say this isn't our problem? Uh, this is the, this is the Trump administration's fault that this has happened. Well, you would have to have the imagination of Walt Disney to buy into that storyline. Uh, the the reality is is that the Biden administration is uh, filled with uh, those uh, adherents to the one world government uh, uh, philosophy. Uh, and therefore, they, they no longer see uh, America uh, as a, a, a nation state uh, that, is, that stands alone, uh, that is uh, unique in its 245-year history, in that we have, in fact, as the founders uh, designed, put a harness on the reach uh, and power of government, understanding something that Aristotle talked about, and that is that there is a direct tension between the organized power of the state and individual liberty. The more powerful the state, the less individual liberty we experience. And therefore, that's where the blame is. These folks are trying to radically transform what has been for 245 years uh, a, an exceptional nation in, in, in all the world. I think there's something that should be learned from the people trying to leave these statist governments to come to a place where allegedly we're free, while politically we're just kind of moving that direction. There should be some irony there. Now, every administration uh, faces challenges, right? Because the world is always difficult, and you always come in, and, and, and the world has been happening before you're the president. And, and he seems to be facing this incredible storm of crises. Uh, what's going on in Afghanistan right now, uh, probably of his own making. Then we see inflation. We see what's going on in America's cities with crime. Uh, we, we're talking about what's happening at the border. How much of, of the struggle, and this is just 200 days into his administration, right? This is a tough start. How much of this do you attribute to just, you know, this is the job you signed up for, and now you've got to try to fix it? And how much of this is self-created? I think a, a lot of it is uh, reflective of a, a philosophy that the Biden administration uh, put in place. You have to remember that in 2020, uh, it were the supporters of Biden, the opponents of President Trump, uh, were in fact talking about defunding the police, losing sight of the fact that the first responsibility of government, whether at the local level or national level, is national security or state or, or city safety, neighborhood safety, the protection of innocent life. Uh, but this is an administration that is filled with people who have tried to run God and faith out of the public square. And as most statist governments across the world and throughout history, they are trying to crush the family, because the family is the incubator of liberty. Again, as they try to build more and more dependency on the state so that folks won't press to be free-willed citizens, but become docile uh, subjects of the state. The end of July 
Biden's approval rates approval rate had fallen 10 points over the, the, the prior month. I haven't seen any numbers uh, in, in response to Afghanistan. Do, and yesterday he had he made a statement trying to assure the American public that this is he's got everything under control. This is exactly what the plan was. It's just hard. But all of this essentially, it seems to, he seems to be sec- suggesting was was unavoidable. Do you think that the American people are going to blame Biden for what's happening? Well, absolutely. And, and again, I use this figuratively. Uh, Biden is a dead man walking. Uh, the, the, the fact of the matter is, is that he's weak. He's docile. He's very, very fragile, uh, and he's he's confused. And as a consequence, folks who are driving his agenda, again, are are status, folks who believe that, uh, like the New York Times uh, 1619 project, that America is irreparably racist and flawed and must be leveled uh, and and recreated or started over again. Mm -hmm. Uh, We have to push back. We have to... We have to basically say that in 245 years, while not perfect, we have, in fact, been an exceptional nation, a beacon of freedom. And as you just indicated, this is why people are rushing to get here and not rushing to get out. And and that's the truth. I mean, and you see that in Afghanistan, the extreme measures that people were going to just with the hope of maybe getting out of a place like Afghanistan and coming to the United States. Now, I want to shift gears a little bit with you, um, because for better or worse, all of this is happening in a political context. And and it's a global politics, but it's also local politics. And as the Biden administration deals with this, we are are looking down the barrel of the 2022 elections. How many of these issues are still going to be alive and relevant next year when people vote? I I think this is a slow breed, uh, uh, bleed. And as a consequence, uh, a lot of the aftershocks of his uh, freefall will actually still be still be there. Look, people are now realizing. You talk to folks on the ground uh, in their neighborhoods, uh, in their communities. They will tell you one uh, that the the price of gas is going up, right. the price of a, a loaf of bread and, and and basic food items going up, the value of the dollar going down. You know, this this is this is an administration that actually has created a reverse uh, incentive structure that actually pays folks more not to work than to work. Uh, and as a consequence, and I sound like a broken record, this is slowly trying to erode our free willed independence and make us subjects that are malleable and dependent on the logist of a bureaucratic uh, elite running running government. And that's why they want to push changes in our election system, uh, making it of less local control and state control, giving it control of federalizing our election system uh, with the desire of creating a one-party nation. You know, the they're trying to thread this needle on Capitol Hill right now because they've been trying to get rid of the filibuster so they could pack the Supreme Court, federalize all the elections, uh, the Green New Deal, all these these extremist kind of left-wing proposals that they've maybe seen this window of opportunity. Do you think the, the, the various crises that the administration is dealing with is going to make it harder for them to get those things through Congress? Uh, I, I do, because when 
those legislators, those members of Congress go back home, what they find out is that their constituents are not stuck on stupid. And they are pushing back and they're demanding a response to the weirdness, the, 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 the stupidity of those things that the Biden administration are trying to put uh, in, in, in motion. Um, at the end of the day, Frederick Douglass, the great abolitionist, said it best. Those who are whooped easiest are whooped most often, and the American citizens are saying, we're not going to be whooped on this. How do you think uh, that this is going to play? The, the Biden to Carter comparisons are starting to be made. Is that fair? Maybe. There's some things that are happening that, that are, are, are ominous. Um, we know what followed Jimmy Carter, and it was Ronald Reagan. Do you think there's any reason to, in, in this malaise, to be optimistic that maybe this is just temporary in a moment that might lead us to, to a leader who understands what the problem is and can maybe uh, lead us out of this? I, I, I do, particularly if the Republicans don't trip over themselves to give uh, the Biden administration a, a backdoor to, to walk out of uh, the, the, the latest uh, gift that the Republicans gave the Biden administration was the $1.5 trillion infrastructure deal, which wasn't about infrastructure. It was about growing government uh, and empowering uh, a political elite. Uh, and so if the Republicans don't give them uh, that opportunity to, to claw back, I think the American electorate will change uh, the, the seating arrangement. Uh, in, in Congress and in Washington, D.C. Well, it's going to be interesting. I mean, historically, these midterms would have been difficult for the president's party anyway. Um, this is starting off to be an, an unusually difficult first two years. And, of course, you know, a year and three months is an eternity in politics, and a lot can change. But uh, I think we're already all curious to see what the impact of this is going to be. One other thing that's relevant as we look forward to 2022 is the census results and how that's going to kind of reconfigure some of the states, the makeup in Congress. Uh, what did you see in the in the census uh, data that uh, you think is interesting? Well, people continue to vote with their feet. Uh, they move towards their their safe uh, their self interest. Uh, their safety, their prosperity, mm -hmm. uh, their ability to work and create wealth and independence. Uh, that's why buried in a lot of the uh, election integrity or um, attempts to transform our election system to a federalized system, you see uh, this, this advocacy for the creation of so-called uh, nonpartisan commissions yeah. to determine the, the, the lines, take it out of the hands of the elected representatives of the people to draw the lines. Because one of the things that the Biden administration understands is that Republicans now control more chambers of state legislatures, more governorship ships than, 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 than their party. And everything has, the table has been set for that, that uh, advantage to, to widen in state legislatures, and as you mentioned, uh, we have a real possibility to take back the House and the Senate. I, I think that's an interesting point. That I think there's some helpful context here. We go back to 2008 when President Obama got elected. Over the course of his eight years, it was 
a gain of over, I think, 900 offices in state legislature, in state legislatures and governor's mansions across the country. Republicans picked up over 900 seats. And though uh, the Democrats currently control Washington, D.C., those gains at the local level were never lost. Do you think that matters? Oh, yeah. I, I think I think it, it, it does matter. Uh, and the, the Biden team, Biden, they un, they understand it. That's why they're now trying to cram as much as they can. Yeah. Uh, but before uh, the the 2000 uh, and, and, and 22 elections. And as we discussed just a moment ago, I, I'm, I'm now very curious to see whether their entire legislative agenda gets sidelined uh, on some level just because of all of the things that are sucking the air out of the room, these legitimate crises that they're having to, to deal with if somehow they lose uh, the ability, the political capital to force it through, to thread the needle, to twist the arms, whatever they were going to have to do to Joe Manchin. I mean, maybe he just, maybe they just don't have this, uh, the, the ability to do that anymore. What's your prediction? We've got one minute. Give me about 30 seconds. What's your prediction for what this all means? What it all means is that, one, American pe- the American people are going to push back. When they start messing with our kids, uh, that is where we draw the line. Uh, when they start talking about America uh, as a racist country, and they, they, they deny the fact that while not perfect, yeah. we have made tremendous movements towards uh, equality and recognizing the dignity of all our citizens. Uh, they are in for a fight. Ken Blackwell, as always, really appreciate your wisdom and uh, being here today. Thank you. Be with you, Joseph. And uh, we are going to continue this conversation because it's never, ever over. And friends, uh, before we leave today, I want to remind you of the article, Five Ways to Pray for the Afghani People, that's posted on the website at TonyPerkins.com. There are challenges. Please do be in prayer for them and in prayer for our nation and all of our leaders. We'll talk about it all tomorrow on Washington Watch. We'll see you then. Washington Watch with Tony Perkins is brought to you by Family Research Council and is entirely listener-supported. Portions of the show discussing candidates are brought to you by Family Research Council Action. For more information on anything you've heard today or to find out how you can partner with us in our ongoing efforts to promote faith, family, and freedom, visit TonyPerkins.com. Also, to leave a comment about Washington Watch, call our watch line at 1-866-372-7234. That's 1-866-372-7234. 